0: Welcome to the OK Computer podcast takeover of the On The Tape feed. OK Computer is the latest offering for risk reversal media. We're going to cover all things tech, public and private markets, the intersection of Web 2 and Web 3. We have this amazing group of co-hosts and contributors. This is going to be in the On The Tape feed for a short period of time. So please follow OK Computer in your podcast stores so you get new episodes every Wednesday on your phone. Thanks. All right, welcome to OK Computer. I'm Dan Nathan. I am here with a general partner and managing director of VC firm Moxie Ventures in Boulder, Colorado. But it's not Katie Stanton, the general partner and VC from Moxie that many OKC listeners have gotten familiar with over the last few months. It's with Alex Redder, her partner. Hi, Alex. How are you, man? Welcome to OK Computer. Hey, Dan. Thanks for having me. All right, listen, we got a ton to talk about. We're going to hit this whole saga with Twitter, with Elon Musk's bid for the company, his hostile bid for the company. You were an employee at Twitter from 2010 to 2016, last as the SVP of engineering, and you actually hired Prague Agarwal, the existing CEO of the company. That's going to be really interesting to talk about. Really quickly, what is the SVP of engineering at a large social media company like Twitter?
1: Right. So I was responsible for engineering and operations of the company. So a little over half the company reported up to me. We were building the software, building servers, the data centers and the hardware, writing the code, pushing the code, working very closely with product to figure out what to build, working very closely with sales on the revenue side to make sure that the ad system had the features that it needed to keep growing revenue and making sure the site didn't crash, keeping the site up, all those things. It was exciting and fun. You
0: presided over the ad business from like its infancy when they started figuring out monetization. And I often said this to, I think, our mutual friend, Adam Bain, who was last what COO of the company when he left in 2016. There's probably been a handful of companies that have gone from zero to two plus billion dollars in revenue in the time in which Twitter did it, which was an amazing accomplishment.
1: I was so lucky. I got to work with great people. I worked with Adam on the sales side. I had a colleague, Kevin Wheel, who is the head of product for advertising as well. We all had great teams and we got to build that. And you're right, it grew like crazy for those first three or four years that we were doing it. It was a ton of fun.
0: Yeah. So it's interesting. I mean, we'll get to the Elon thing. I want to kind of work backwards a little bit of how you became a VC. And obviously, you met Katie, I assume, at Twitter. And there's a lot, I think, that what Elon Musk is trying to raise a stink about with this company Not exactly so sure what he's so exercised about as it relates to this product, but I think it has to do with the lack of innovation, maybe since you left. How's that? All right. Let's go backwards for a second here, Alex. How did you become a VC? How did you go from Silicon Valley to the beautiful town of Boulder, Colorado, actually where I think you know my twin brother lives. He's lived there for 13 years. I've spent a lot of time in Boulder. It's an amazing town. How did you get there?
1: Yep. Boulder is amazing. And you and I, since I last talked to you, uh, we're going to go see a concert together later this summer. <laughs> yeah, we are. So I'm excited to have you out here and hang out a little bit.
0: And that concert would be the Dead & Company with Bob Weir and John Mayer at Folsom Field. I'm psyched.
1: I saw them there in the before times, right before the pandemic, last time they played, It was awesome. So I'm psyched about that. Psyched to hang out there with you. How I got into VC. So I started about 12 years ago, just angel vesting casually. And the reason is there's so many people building great things. And I was lucky enough to get to hire a lot of them at Twitter. But you can't hire all the people building great things at Twitter. And it was just a way to see what other people were doing and try to help them, try to mentor them when the right thing to do was leverage your experience to help them avoid mistakes you've made. It's great to get out of their way when the right thing to do is just get out of their way and marvel at the awesome things that are happening. So I just found it as a really fun way to know more entrepreneurs, try to help them a little bit and get to work on things that wasn't Twitter all the time. So it started accidentally. So I did work very closely with Katie at Twitter. We actually met before that. We've known each other for almost 20 years. We met at Google, but worked really closely together at Twitter. And when I started angel vesting, I didn't really know what I was doing. So there were a bunch of us that were all kind of new to the space. And we just started sharing deals together. And I would share something with Katie. Hey, Katie, I'm looking at this, but I don't understand this aspect of their go-to-market. What do you think? Or Katie would say, hey, Alex, I'm looking at this, but I don't understand this aspect of the technical details. What do you think? We just started sharing deals. And we co-angel invested and did about a dozen deals together and looked at hundreds of deals when we didn't do it. And then, of course, that blossomed over time. She went to start Moxie while I was still doing other things, and I helped her on the side. And then eventually, my time working on flying cars wrapped up.
0: Hold on. Hold on. Flying cars? You worked on flying cars. That's what the Kitty Hawk is, I see, on your LinkedIn? That's right. Yep. Before we get to that, I want to ask you, though, because Katie spent a lot of time on the pod, we've discussed this. Her focus right now seems to be on health and med tech and climate tech. And I'm curious, do you guys have different verticals? Do you work on a lot of the same stuff together? You have a very technical background, obviously, and she's worked at every major social media company going back to Yahoo over the last 20 some years. And I'm just curious if you guys have different focuses.
1: So I don't know if there are many rules, but one rule we have is every deal is a moxie deal. So there aren't Alex companies and Katie companies, and we're a generalist firm. So we do work on med tech and health tech. As you mentioned, we do a lot in climate. We do things in applications of artificial intelligence. We're really interested in fintech. So we look across verticals. I would say Katie and I split up more by functional area than we do company or vertical. So if any one of our portfolio companies has a branding question, Katie is the natural person to go to. If any one of our companies needs help hiring a CTO, I'm the natural person to go to. But we both work on all the companies together. And I really like that, actually. I like that I get to work across the portfolio. Katie does too. We're not competing with each other to see who brings in the hottest deals. It's very collaborative. That's one of the benefits, honestly, of having known someone for 20 years, having worked with them for 10 years, and having invested with them as co-angels for 10 years. It's, we know where we stand and how we work together.
0: What's it like geographically being where you are? There's a huge migration from Silicon Valley and Austin's been a beneficiary. Miami, New York City has been a massive beneficiary as it relates to fintech and Web3 and crypto. I know that Katie spends a good bit of time traveling. There's also a great tech ecosystem in Boulder. I know firsthand just from my brother's network there, we're coming out of the pandemic here and things are happening again, but you're probably in a pretty good spot in the middle of the country in a place that has some really good DNA as it relates to tech too.
1: It's great. It's a two-hour flight to the West Coast. It's only four hours to New York. We're in mountain time. So it's easy. You're not really too far away from either coast. There's great things in Boulder. When I first moved here, I met, everyone was super inviting. I met everyone at Foundry Group, Brad and that whole team that's been here for decades. I met Techstars. I ended up being a mentor at Techstars. Some of the companies that we're now investors in, the Moxie funds and personally came out of time that we met at Techstars. So it's awesome. It's great to be somewhere with a lot of tech going on. And as you mentioned, the whole world is so dispersed now, you don't really need to be on Sand Hill Road the way you really had to be, call it, 20 years ago to be a VC.
0: No doubt about that. Seems like everyone is so down on San Francisco in general and the Valley, and it kind of feels like Zoom stock relative to, let's say, Apple stock. You know, Apple stock is only down six percent from an all-time high, and Zoom's down like seventy percent. And the sentiment couldn't be worse. People are just coming in and they sell Zoom every day, and they keep bidding up Apple, and Apple feels like it's that new shiny thing. I feel like San Francisco and the Valley in general is going to have a massive snapback at some point. I don't mean that. People like you and Katie are going to go back there. I just feel like the DNA as it relates to tech, I just use that expression as it relates to Boulder. And I really feel that maybe it's as far as entrepreneurship, but it's the combination of entrepreneurship. It's a combination of just investment companies that are there. And then the network effects that
1: have just been created right for the last 50 years or so. So I think Silicon Valley is always going to be the Silicon Valley. Everyone in the world tries to copy it it's worked to varying extents, but there's no second Silicon Valley. It's still going to be the epicenter. Talent's universally distributed, but opportunity is not. So the idea that you don't have to live in Palo Alto, where no one can afford to live anyway, just to get funding for your startup, I think that's a really good thing. I think just what we're seeing is with a lot of change, a lot of the change is positive, but along the way, there's an overcorrection. I mean, think about the global financial collapse and the collapse of the housing market. It was good that we got away from everyone being able to get a $10 million mortgage when they had no job. That was good. In the process, we overcorrected a little bit, and even very reasonable candidates couldn't get mortgages for a while. But we got back to closer to what the steady state was. I think you're going to see that with Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley is not over, but at the same time, it's really good that the world is more distributed now away from it.
0: Yeah, no doubt. All right, Here this is what we call in my business a segue. So people often ask me, what's like one of the most interesting books you read on entrepreneurship? And I often refer to The Wright Brothers by David McCullough. Have you read that book? It's been a while, but I have read that. It's an absolutely amazing book. Like When you think about when these guys, what they were doing, the tools they were working with, and what they knew about the industry that they were trying to ultimately break into, wasn't even like an industry. It's pretty fascinating to me. I have actually read that twice. I listened to it once. And David McCullough was actually the voiceover for many of Ken Burns' amazing documentaries. So I would say if you read that book, go back and listen to it too. The segue here is Kitty Hawk. All right, what was Kitty Hawk? You worked there for a few years after Twitter before you came VC. Uh,
1: That's right. I worked there a few years. So I should say when I quit Twitter, I was just ready to be done with Twitter. It was great and educational and awesome, but six years of that place is 25 years anywhere else. So I just wanted a break. I had no idea what I was going to do. I started looking around. It was actually poking around with some side projects in AI for cancer detection and hanging out with my kids and doing all kinds of fun things. But anyways, I have a background in aviation. I'm a pilot. I love flying. Maybe the best way to think about that is I think when you're seven years old, everybody loves airplanes and rockets and then you grow out of it. And I just never got the memo. I forgot to grow out of it. So to this day, my wife will yell at me if we're driving down the road and I hear jet noise, I'll look out the window and she has to scream at me to pay attention to the road. She has a valid point. I love that stuff. And these things are flying computers, basically. And obviously, I worked on computers for a long time. So I had an opportunity to come and join what's basically a flying computer company, an eVTOL company. And I just thought that was too cool to pass up. I figured this is probably an extremely challenging business. I don't know how it's going to go, but I'm going to learn a ton. I'm going to have fun. I'm sure I'm going to get to work with great people because I met a bunch of them in the interview process, and they're awesome. And there is no way if I get to the end of my life and look back on my life, I'm going to think to myself, wow, I wish I hadn't worked on electric flying cars. All those hypotheses played out. It was awesome, and I learned a lot, and it also is a very challenging business. So the idea is, what if people could get around in a carbon-free way in a way that saves them time? Being in traffic is terrible. Time is the one thing that we all run out of. You could be below the poverty line. You could be the world's richest person. You're still going to run out of time. And what if we could get around more safely in a quieter way and without carbon emissions and just zoom from point to point up in the sky where there are essentially almost an infinite number of lanes because you're having a whole extra dimension? That was the idea. So that's what we were working on. We made a ton of progress. How far away
0: are we? I know there was a company, I can't remember who it was, but I saw that went public maybe via SPAC maybe a year or two ago. And I remember they actually did a demo, or at least they had one of the vehicles out of the New York Stock Exchange. And to a lot of people like me, it just seems like Jetsons sort of stuff. And how far away are we from that being a reality?
1: People ask me that a lot. It's very hard to predict. I think we're further than some of those companies want you to believe, to be honest. The other thing that I think the general public doesn't know is you'd think, oh, I saw a flying prototype. We're almost there. But actually, you're probably only 5 to 10% of the way there between a flying one-off prototype that under a controlled environment, a test pilot can fly versus something that in scale is fully approved by the federal regulators because aviation is federally regulated, local regulators, right, traffic and noise and landing on rooftops, that's all local regulation. To get all of that approved by these vehicles going at scale, flying over people's heads every day, that's a lot further away than a demonstration vehicle. So I think, unfortunately, it's going to be a while. That said, they are really cool. And when they're here and when you can go from Kennedy Airport to downtown Manhattan in maybe 10 or 15 minutes with no traffic, so you can predict the time every time without burning any carbon safely and quickly and cheaply, that's going to be incredible.
0: All right. Two questions on that. My first question was a dumb one. It's the one that everyone asks you. But is the path for wide use of those vehicles, is it autonomy? Because is the idea of human error would just be far too great? And so that's one of the reasons why it's going to take so long, because we have to get to that level before federal regulators are going to let thousands of these things in the air crossing all over the place.
1: So in the long term, it's autonomy, for sure. It will be safer and more economical to take the pilot out of the vehicle. That said, think about cars. Relatively easy today to build something that works autonomously most of the time, but to get something that's so good that you can actually take the person and the steering wheel out of the car and get the public to accept it, even if the data shows it is safe, that's really, really challenging. So the first version of these things, probably the second version too, will all be piloted by a person. And you can make the economics of that work. If you have four or five passengers in the back, you can make the economics of that work. But over the long term, they'll be autonomous and they'll be even more affordable still as you take the pilot out.
0: Initially, commercial use for the most part, it's going to be for public transportation.
1: It'll be rideshare. Yep. So instead of calling an Uber or a Lyft, you call essentially a flying version of one of those things that's fully electric. You climb in it, it takes off, takes you to where you want to go and drop you off. And you need to pool the seats, of course, because they're not very economical when there's only one person sitting in the back.
0: Fair enough. All right. So I don't want to really bury the lead here. I want to talk about your time at Twitter because it's pretty fascinating. You just explained that when you left in 2016, you were the SVP of engineering. Big job there, right? That was part of the executive committee. And it's interesting that a lot of people that I know from Twitter left around the same time. So you guys went through this period of hyper growth and then you went through this period and this is where we're gonna to get to this Elon hostile bid for the company right now and try to peel back a layer or two and try to figure out what does he see is this great opportunity to buy this company, if you will. But I think a lot of people who had done most of the heavy lifting in that period up until your IPO in 2013 and the years into the 2016 campaign, I take issue with this notion that Elon or a lot of people have used this expression that's the de facto town square. When you think about how many actual people use it here in America for all intents and purposes. It's not particularly large. There's a lot of people that from my kids' age and down, they don't use it now and they may never. And then people from slightly older than us, let's call it in their late 50s or 60s, who will never use it unless you are in sports journalism, politics, financial markets, or tech, or VC. They're just not using it here in America. Now, you could make the argument that it amplifies a lot of what's going on out there in the news or that sort of thing. But for whatever reason, you guys had a huge target on your back, what you did or did not do during the 2016 election, which might not have been fair. But now all of a sudden, that platform being co-opted for some pretty bad uses is now being accused of censorship. And the thing that I find most interesting about it is that the founder of the company, Jack Dorsey, and you don't have to opine on Jack. I'm sure you're friends with him and I'm sure you have a ton of respect for him or whatever, but two times CEO now who recently just left He actually seems to be on the side that the platform is not being used for good. So I'm just curious if you can give us a little sense or the listener a little sense of what was the reasoning why so many people left in 2016, it seems, in and around the election?
1: Well, I can't speak for other people. I can just speak for myself. But for me, I've been there for six years. For reasons you mentioned and some others, six years of that company felt a lot longer than other six years, six-year periods of my life. We had grown this revenue engine. That was really good. I got to work with great people. We did that. I was very fortunate to be given the opportunity to run engineering for the whole company after about four years. I felt like we really did make some meaningful improvements there. It was a turnaround job and it was fun. And I do feel like we made some meaningful improvements and they're great people there. And we did really get to unlock their potential and make the environment for engineers a lot better and the site stopped crashing as much. And I feel like we made a lot of good progress, but after six years, I just didn't want to do that anymore. I wanted a smaller group. I wanted to be building something new instead of fixing something or trying to change something. And I think that sentiment was shared by a lot of folks who, like me, joined around 2010. We had seen so much. And I think there's probably a reason that professors are offered sabbaticals every seven years. That's probably not a random number. That chunk of time, two-thirds of a decade-ish, to me, it felt like time for a new chapter.
0: All right. So you hired the now CEO of the company, Parag Agarwal. He was a software engineer. I think that was a title that you had when you joined the company in 2010. And he obviously became an engineering star there. It sounds like he had a very close relationship with Jack Dorsey, the founder. Were you surprised by the choice when Jack left in the fall? You don't have to comment on him as an individual, but more that they chose the CTO to run the company where a lot of the activist investors who are there prior to Jack leaving Elon right now, they're critical of the development of the products over the last five years and their ability to monetize at the rate that some of their competitors do, their ability to make a user-friendly user interface that will help grow users. As a pundit, when I saw that and I had to comment on on CNBC, my immediate reaction is that this is the exact wrong person to transform this company. If we all know what the criticisms are about their ability to grow from here, it just seemed wrong. And so I'm just curious what your thought was when you saw that they hired the CTO. You don't have to comment on him as an individual.
1: I understand what you're saying. I will comment on him because I know him and I'm a huge fan he's a super genius. He's a hard worker. He's extremely technical. He ships things. In my time after we hired him, he did meaningfully improve and change the things that he touched. So he joined the ads team and that was working very well. He contributed to that and made contributions on something that was working well. When I was tapped to run engineering for the company, I asked him to come over and work on some non-ads things because they were in more need of more significant changes. He was doing a great job working on the home timeline, which is the core product. And they introduced a lot of the ranking and other things, which did substantially change that product. So in terms of a change agent, I guess I disagree a little bit. I think he is a different choice, to be honest. And having come from a technical background, he's data-driven and methodical. He's a clear thinker. He will make a decision and know not everyone's going to love it and won't revisit it the minute it has less than 100% approval. So I think those are all really... Strong characteristic, so I really like him. I was surprised, but not because I think it's the wrong fit. It's just not an obvious decision to make, and certainly, there's a five year gap between when I quit the company and when he was appointed CEO, so I certainly hadn't seen the ramp up where maybe that made more sense. So I was excited about it. I was surprised by it, optimistic about it, and I will say, I will bet on an extremely technical, smart person with the track record of making contributions who then needs to grow into a more broad business role, I'll bet on that transition every day of the week over transitioning in the other direction. So I think it's cool.
0: That's fair. And I mean, that seems about as concise of a defense of that choice because I'm sure you've read it on the Twitter or on the blogs or on shows like CNBC where a lot of people were critical. And I think it's important if you want to fix some technical problems, it's better than having a salesperson, I guess, in charge of that transformation. I think one of the things that stock market investors have been disappointed in, we just talked about their inability to grow users and monetize them at the rate of some of their competitors, but I think they feel like in product innovation. A lot of people still think that user interface is really still hard to figure out, and it's one of the biggest impediments to adding new users to the platform. And so I'm just curious, Elon's an outsider here, and he's obviously a very technical guy. And I know that there's very few people that you'll hear opine on this, say, if Elon really wanted to focus on fixing what he and many other people think are the big problems, he could clearly do it. But the problem is he's the CEO of a trillion-dollar auto company. He's the CEO of a $100 billion privately-valued space company that will likely be a trillion-dollar company in the not-so-distant future why is he wasting his time with this? He's a power user, obviously. He's got 82 million followers. And when he tweets anything, a dumb dog meme, it gets hundreds of thousands of likes and reshares or whatever. What does he give a shit? If you were there and you were still in that job, you'd obviously be very nervous because if he wins, you're out of a job for all intents and purposes. And I'm just curious, what do you think if he gives a shit? How is he wronged in some way, shape or form by this platform?
1: Can I answer something you alluded to at the beginning first and then answer the actual question about Elon? Of course. So the thing you said about Twitter is totally right. Everyone knows about Twitter. We think it's this massive worldwide thing on the scale of things it's compared to like Facebook and Instagram, and it's not. It has an order of magnitude, less users than it. The reason we think that is because all the people we listen to, sports broadcasters, you name them, politicians, financial markets tech people, VCs, they're all on Twitter all the time, talking to each other on Twitter on the time. Every article you read has a tweet embedded in it. Every TV show you watch has a tweet up on a screen, but none of those people are using the product. It's not a billion user product, and maybe it never will be. The things that it's for, real-time news and information, aren't multi-billion user use cases the way sharing photos of your kids is. What do people do on Facebook? They like talk to their high school friends and share photos of their kids. Same thing with Instagram, taking narcissistic selfies. That's overly critical, but you know what I mean? Those are much broader use cases. Doesn't surprise me that billions of people want to do it in the same way that fast food is a much broader use case than fine dining. You would never yell at a Michelin starred restaurant because they have less active users than McDonald's. It just doesn't make sense. But you don't confuse those two things because they're obviously different. But I think for the reason you mentioned, we confuse Twitter with one of those multi-billion dollar networks. It's just not what it is. So I think Twitter's main problem is everyone thinks it's something that it's fundamentally not and thinks, oh, if only we could push this feature or only we had this new leader, it would now become this multi-billion dollar thing. I think that's the core problem.
0: So, how can he be so confused about what it is? And he says he's doing this in the name of free speech. Because at the end of the day, I will tell you this trust and safety. And I know you guys have been really out front for five years talking about it. You're a private company. You can censor anything you want, you can kick people off if they break your terms of service and everything like that. I was pretty critical because I actually think Donald Trump is a political terrorist. And I think the fact that they allowed him to stay on the platform and cause. All of the divisive behavior and instigate here domestically or tweeting from his shitter in the morning to a world leader or something like that, I actually think he should not have been on. I think that he should have had to go through the normal protocols that exist in any government, given all of that responsibility that that person has. So I think they should have kicked him off during the campaign in 2016, first things first. But they waited until people died in a violent insurrection on our capital that he instigated and he used... the de facto town square, as I'm saying in air quotes right here. What he really used was a bullhorn to get both sides really crazy. And I think that was a huge mistake. So what sort of bug is up Elon's ass that he thinks that they are censoring because they kicked off Donald Trump off the platform? I don't get it, man. So to me, I think it's a broken platform if this is what the debate's about.
1: Look, for anyone that thinks Twitter censors too much, there are a ton of people that think Twitter does not censor and allows all not just the political stuff, but straight up trolling and violent threats and all that stuff has been allowed for a long time. Elon said, oh, this isn't about the money, which obviously it's clearly not about the money. That guy has so much money. It doesn't matter if his Twitter stake 20Xs or goes to zero. It just makes no difference. He's still got hundreds of billions of dollars. So that part I agree with. He said, it's not about the money. It's about the future of democracy or something like that, the future of civilization. That's crazy to me. I think that's falling into the trap that we talked about before. The fact of the matter is we think Twitter matters so much. Twitter could go away tomorrow or it could magically transform into this Facebook scale thing with no spam and abuse. It probably doesn't affect the future democracy either way. Things that do matter a lot more are the things that Elon is really good at, like transitioning transportation to an electric future. i building a multi-planetary society. I mean, the main thing about... Elon that perplexes me is not why he's interested, but he's clearly a busy guy. I don't think he's looking for non-priority zero things to work on, non-most important things to work on. Like, Go work on something that matters more. So He obviously cares deeply about climate change, which again is somewhat perplexing when you think about the type of speech he wants to allow back on the platform and the types of policies those people tend to support on average. If you care about climate change, Tesla alone is not going to solve climate change. We could all have electric cars. We still have massive problems, concrete and steel emissions, agriculture, long duration storage, so we can get our baseload power to intermittent renewables. There are massive problems. Those are exactly the crazy, large scale, hard software and hardware combined problems that almost no one in the world has success solving, except for this one person. There are a million people that have opinions about free speech on the left or the right, It's unclear what the right answer is, or even if there is a right answer, but I don't think Elon's going to make a meaningful contribution to that either way. Whereas imagine if he spent $34 billion on long duration energy storage, he could change the world in a meaningful way and change the trajectory of society the way he's done with Tesla and the adoption of the electric automobile. Go do that. If you're worried about the future of society, get us on an 100% clean grid, for example, by building storage. Get us carbon negative cement and steel that's cost competitive. Get us carbon-free aviation, something like that. I just think that's such a better use of that man's unique talents instead of getting in the food fight that is Twitter. It just doesn't matter.
0: It seems like it's entertainment or maybe a joke. And you tweeted this a couple weeks ago. I feel like the whole Twitter Elon thing is an elaborate April Fool's joke. Every time I read a headline, I double check that it's not dated April 1st. It just seems like a bit of a sideshow. So what is your take here? Because when you were there, there were plenty of rumors routinely about larger platforms that might buy you or even Salesforce. This is really disruptive stuff though. They held it all hands on deck meeting. I'm just curious, did you hear anything from some of your friends who are still there? Are they all like, this sucks? Because I've heard a lot of VCs and some ex-operators just say if they would take a flamethrower to the operation, they're using revenue per employee. And I have to think if you're there and you're happy, you are unhappy about what's going
1: outside of this. I'm just curious your take on that. Yeah, I feel really bad for... The people there. I feel really bad for Parag. I think, first of all, being the CEO of Twitter is probably one of the hardest jobs in Silicon Valley in tech. And then to have the world's richest man four months in talking about how there's no confidence in the management team after you just tweeted that you're excited about him joining the board, and then you tweet later that it's the right decision for him not to join the board. I just think it's very hard to have the moral authority and leadership that you need to drive change in that world. And I think that's a thing. If I could give Twitter any advice, it's Just focus on something and ignore the noise. The small number of people that actually use Twitter that are extremely vocal, that's not who you should pay attention to. I'll give you a perfect example. Whether or not there's an edit button is this religious thing to a small number of people. It turns out, speaking of the future democracy and civilization, it doesn't matter at all. So they're what, 300 million active Twitter users? That's something like less than 5% of the Earth's population of those. 80, 90% 80, 90% of them don't even tweet anyway, so they don't need an edit button. So we're talking about maybe 0. 0.4, 0.5% of the Earth's population max would ever even notice if there was an edit button, and yet it's this massive religious thing that we think is going to affect the future of the company in democracy. Who cares? No one cares. So you got to ignore these loud people talking about specific things that they want and pick something and go execute it.
0: I'm more in the hot take business when I'm in my seat on CNBC, and it's really about how is the market going to react, how are investors going to think about it. a couple of occasions, this is a company I've followed very closely for a long time. And I think I understand the product really well, and I understand why the limitations to its potential growth. But in the last couple of weeks, I've made this comment a couple of times that... Elon's almost punching down. And I've made that this is a very weak board. And I don't mean that like they're weak individuals or have bad character or anything like that, but they're a weak board. They've already been pushed around a lot by activists, okay? And then when I look at this management without being founder-led, just from a stock market investor perspective, I think it's a weak management given what they're tasked to do right now. So I've said that on a couple of occasions and he knew he could push them around and he probably played some games. This was a guy who was tweeting out memes of Prague in a Stalin uniform. This was in December. So I just think that he's got an ax to grind. We don't really know what his jam is right here. I think that he probably goes away is my guess. I think the stock ends up going lower. I think the board turns over a bit. I think Prague is out within a year, sadly, even if you thought he was the right guy. And I think the stock's lower and that's the sad part. And then I think the morale really sucks. So they're going to have probably a brain drain or it's probably going on right now. I'm just curious how you think this thing shakes out. If you have any view about it, does does Elon say, yeah, it's probably more important trying to figure out how to get rockets to Mars and people back from there and fix the electric grid and do all these sorts of things. Just curious your quick take on that.
1: Well, I hope you're wrong. First of all, I know a lot of people there and they're really smart, excellent people. It's also, it's a hard environment to do your best work. Having a lot of change does seem to be this company that has the expectations put on of it like a company that's much bigger and much more influential than it actually is I think historically they have struggled with focus and decisiveness and simplicity all this extra noise makes all of that harder for the reason that you have mentioned it seems like the board obviously the board is going to reject I think the deadline is tomorrow they're clearly going to reject that from every single we've seen after that I can't imagine a PE firm coming in to buy it it's also Elon also what has a track record of saying he's secured funding for taking Tesla private at one point and that where did that go one twenty million fine later, seems like we're still up to the sort of behavior. I guess at that level of wealth, $20 million is how you and I think of a nickel or something. So it doesn't matter. My suspicion is it goes away. Either the financing doesn't materialize or decides to go work on something else. My sincere hope, as I mentioned, is he's probably the most uniquely talented entrepreneur on the planet. Please go work on something more important. SpaceX, Tesla, they obviously have more to do. There are many other problems in the areas he cares about, both fixing the planet and making an interplanetary species. There are many other problems that need to be solved. Please go work on those. I think he can be so uniquely additive there. I hope he goes back to that.
0: Well, I love your take on it. One thing that I always thought was really interesting, I think you absolutely nailed it, I've said this for years, is that Twitter's killer app is real-time search. And when you think about some of the largest platforms, the biggest search platform, which is Google, they don't have social. Yeah, YouTube feels kind of social now, but they've tried things in the past. And I've long thought that Twitter would be an amazing feature in the alphabet suite of products, and it could be quickly be a billion-user sort of product, and there's a lot of commercial applications applications I could see for it. And you know, with $5 billion in revenues, I don't see it as one of those things where, okay, I get what the Justice Department would say. If you have Google, the thousand pound gorilla, it really feels like this product should be a feature on a larger platform. Again, I don't think regulators let that happen or they should merge with Snap and Evan Spiegel could run the company with a Parag who is, it sounds like you think a genius. I think there's some strategic outcomes that could make a
1: ton of sense for this product. One thing that you hit on, I think, that's 100% right, maybe in my own words, is this is a tautology. Twitter is at its best when it's doing the thing it's best at. Real time search is an example of that. Breaking news is an example of that. I'll give you an example. The other day, there was a forest fire a half mile from my house, and I needed to know if we needed to evacuate. The place to go for that is Twitter. There's no other place on the planet where I can get that information in that moment. There are a lot of use cases like that, but they're not multi billion person active use cases it's amazing at something but that something is not going to make it facebook scale so whether or not that means it shouldn't be an independent company or should merge who knows someone will figure that out but i think where they get distracted is they listen to all the noise everyone and his brother has an idea 10 ideas for how twitter can be bigger than facebook depending on what month it is it's oh good we're saved a new ceo with their new idea Oh, good. We're saved. Elon with a new idea. Oh, good. We're saved. A founder returning. Oh, good. We're saved. The founder getting kicked out. There's no one person with an idea that's going to make this. Honestly, that would have happened already. A lot of smart people have been thinking about this and trying things. And Twitter runs a lot of experiments. I think it's a fiction to say that they don't do anything. They never ship anything. They run a ton of experiments. I mean, when I was there, we literally ran out of traffic to run all the experiments we wanted to run simultaneously. So we had to build a system just to deal with that. So If there were a single thing that you could turn this magically into in the next trillion dollar company, it would have happened already. And I think that's where they fall down.
0: Listen, Alex, I really appreciate that. And I think you know the fact that you haven't been there in five years and you really have your finger on the pulse of what the opportunity set is for this company and really the potential for an outsider coming in who's just obsessed with the product, kind of feels, I don't know, scorned in some way, shape or form. It doesn't seem that's the best possible outcome for existing shareholders, for the existing management, for employees there, and probably for the users, to your point about some of the things that power users are obsessed about. And the other thing I think is this whole censorship and freedom of speech thing. I think it's a lark. I think it's a sideshow. I think they're just using it as an example. So listen, I really appreciate you coming on OK Computer. I hope you come back, man. I'd love to do it with you and Katie more frequently. And I can't wait. I've really enjoyed hearing from Katie about founders that you guys are backing with Moxie and the way you're working with them and the, really the verticals that you guys are focused on and obviously the geography where you are. So I can't wait to get out there. We're going to see the dead and Co. at Folsom in Boulder in June, man. And I hope you come back on OK Computer.
1: This has been so fun, Dan. Thanks for having me on today. First, I say to my former colleagues and people that joined since I left, I'm rooting for you. Don't listen to all the noise. Just go figure out what you need to do. Go do it. Look at the data and then iterate. Don't listen to everyone. Everyone has an opinion about Twitter. Just go do what you need to do. And second, I should say, thanks for having me. This was super fun. I'd love to come back on again. We are investing in a bunch of awesome, meaningful companies, trying to improve the world with really exceptional founders. I would love to talk about some of them.
0: Alex, thanks so much for coming on here. You have an open mic whenever you want to come back with whoever, and hopefully we'll do it
1: a lot more frequently. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for having me. And coming back sounds great. Let's do it. Hey, guys, it's your favorite producer, Amanda, here. Stick around, because when we come back, Dan will be joined by Derek Dicker of the Churning Group. We'll get his take on Elon Musk's bid for Twitter. He'll share his experience working for The Washington Post after it was acquired by Jeff Bezos
2: and how Web3 plays into this whole saga. So stay tuned.
0: All right. I'm back with Jared Dicker of The Churning Group. You guys know and love him. And we're catching him here on a Tuesday before he's about to do four consecutive nights at Fish at MSG. While you can probably still put a couple sentences together, Jared, how are you?
2: Great. The boys are back in town. Fish usually does four nights during the New Year's run, and they had to cancel in 2020. And they usually come to the garden every year. It's the hometown show, and they haven't been here in two and a half years. So Everyone's ready. They're going to burn it down.
0: I was at that last run. I think I told you, I think it was December 30th, 2019. And I'd never seen a fish show. And I grew up, I'm a bit older than you as a grateful dead fan. And you know, it's interesting because when Jerry died in 1995, a lot of dead fans were already fish fans and they kind of fully went into it. And then a lot of dead fans just didn't really want to kind of recreate like they thought, you know what I mean? Like the fandom and th- that sort of thing. But Were you always a fish fan or did you convert from the dead?
2: I'm a bit too young. I never saw Jerry, uh, but I'm a massive dead fan. I've seen like every iteration post Jerry. I have 15 tattoos and three of which are dead related. So I'm definitely deep in that. But fish was interesting. I mean, I got into fish. I went to a festival when I was about 16 that they threw up in Maine. And that's where I really caught the bug. And if anyone knows like the fish community, I mean, one is they never played the same show. So everything is really kind of spontaneous and new. As musicians, they're just completely out of control. Um, and the community is amazing. I mean, it's so funny. It's like fish, fish was always something that you kind of kept to yourself. And then more and more people start to talk about it more. And now that I'm in web three. Everything that you learn from fish and around community and these like subcultures and incentives, I connect everything to fish. So I've really made it a part of my work.
0: It's pretty cool. I've heard you talk about it. You've talked about it on the pod here. Bob Weir, obviously the Grateful Dead, was on our show Fast Money on CNBC back in like 2013. And I think he was talking about some new project he was working on. It was like some streaming thing or whatever. And I remember saying to him, like, literally, they created the first social network. Obviously it was IRL, but you think about the ways that the fans would communicate with each other, how the band would communicate with fans, how they were able to capture and create fandom and and that sort of thing. So pretty cool stuff, man. Well, listen, let's get to something I think that is a topic that I think you, me, a lot of our friends, whether they be in media or in tech or in finance, um, a lot of people are talking about it. I struggle to know if people outside of those industries care about Elon Musk's hostile bid for Twitter. So he made this, what, about a week and a half ago. He's doing it, I think, because he cares about free speech, supposedly. I I think he feels like he's been unfairly treated by his 82 million followers on Twitter in some way, shape, or form. I don't know. I'm just curious because going back to your time, you worked at the Washington Post on two occasions over the last seven years. And I'd love for you to tell the listener a little bit about what you were doing at the Washington Post and what was it like working for a very old, news publication that had recently been acquired by, at the time, I think probably the richest man in the world, Jeff Bezos, the founder and CEO of
2: Amazon. It's a very loaded topic that I think could go in a variety of directions, but it's one that's very dear to my heart. I mean, as you mentioned, I have I was at the Washington Post. I was at the Huffington Post in the early days, and I had a company that was really trying to focus on the value of information and how to better expose truth.
0: Will you take a step back on that? What was the impetus? So that was Poet. And so you just said some really interesting things. It was about trust. It was about transparency, that sort of thing. So what was it that led you to create that? Were you like Elon Musk five years before Elon Musk was <laughs> happy about, about those issues at Twitter?
2: I'd say like the path to really finding that it was an important problem to solve kind of was an evolution of my career. Like early days at the Huffington Post, we were a blog that then all of a sudden became one of the largest traffic news sources on the internet, eventually selling to AOL. And at that time, And I'm sure, I mean, you remember this and I'm sure many of the listeners remember this. It was really a game of like social and SEO. People didn't really look at the URLs before they clicked on them. So publishers were really incentivized to like get on the first page of Google, really build social headlines that would capture audience attention. Because the whole game was that people are looking for something and if you could be the first link or article in front of them, they'll click it. And very quickly, mainly by way of the Trump era in news, that changed. All of a sudden, that game of being able to win in SEO and being able to win in search and social, regardless of you know the publication you were, whether you were the New York Times or Elite Daily, immediately shifted. And all of a sudden it became incredibly important for people to know The platform that they were reading content on and the reputation of that platform, because, you know, it was kind of this era of fake news. And granted, this was probably around and definitely around for decades and a long time. But when people started to consume more information on social networks like Twitter and Facebook versus going directly to, you know, a newspaper site or source it started to become a way more widespread larger discussed problem and the post and the times and you know the wall street journal and a lot of credible journalism institutions like really took advantage of that all of a sudden like these digital media companies like buzzfeed and huffpost that were totally eating their lunch now all of a sudden weren't as valuable because they didn't have this rich history of reporting and ethics and you know, managing editors that were basically like praised, you know, within the industry, like uh, Marty Barron or Dean Beckwith. So that's where kind of it started to become very obvious to me that we were entering a new terrain and that being able to have the value and reputation of being journalistic institutions was actually a great business. Now, I went down the rabbit hole even further because as the Trump administration continued going through, there were. Two major headwinds that were happening in the news business. One major one was this notion of fake news and deepfakes—that the information that you were consuming may not be what you presume it to be, right? Like it may it may be a deepfake, i.e., like those videos we used to watch of Obama saying something that looked and felt and was Obama and had the CNN logo, but found out that it was kind of like manipulated, or kind of like all this other like propaganda type information being out there, and. What was fascinating in that regard was that even though, like, it was an article from the Washington Post or the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, as much as there's many people that believe that that's credible and understand the ethics that go behind that reporting, there's equally a number of people that that don't believe it, that believe that there is an agenda that, you know, haven't gone deep on understanding, like, how articles come about, how stories come about. So that led me to become the founding CEO of this protocol called Poet. Poet in 2017, 2018, the whole idea was trying to put information and IP on chain, which people thought we were crazy. Now that's basically every NFT project. So we were just way too early. But the notion was if you can start to put like if the first path to publish was putting information on chain and then it went through the distribution and then consumption process well then people could take the time to better understand like where that information came from and make better decisions themselves right the idea was if information is important for your health and good information is important for your health which it does drive your like mentals and things of that nature then very similar to like smoking cigarettes or drinking alcohol there should be a way for people to be warned or better understand like what they're consuming if they so want to go down that path so that was kind of the notion of poet and what we really started thinking through, but a big issue. And I think we're seeing it today, like in the overall kind of Twitter discourse and the Elon discussion is like, what is free speech? What is good information? And I do believe like a lot of that has to do with people better, like educating themselves as to like what the processes are for some of these institutions and, how they get to reporting the information that they do report.
0: Right. But let's think about this free speech. Okay. So how is Elon been harmed? How have organizations or individuals and, and so who, who's being censored here? That, that's what I don't really understand. Is it that Donald Trump was kicked off of a service that is a private company that had all these rules about trust and safety. He routinely violated them for five years and they waited until people died in a violent insurrection on our Capitol to kick them off. And that's the impetus. For this. like That's what I don't really understand when you talk about transparency, because like I look at my trending right now on my Explore tab on Twitter, and I see two things that are debunked. One, a video of Obama. This is like 2022, okay, of a video from Obama from 2017 that's going around meant to be something right now. So going back to the deep fake thing or misappropriated or misallocated kind of information and one of Mika Brzezinski, who is a talking head on MSNBC. So I don't Understand because Alex Jones, you know, one of the worst people in America, maybe the world, has been kicked off this platform. Like, so I just don't understand how an open API or putting this stuff on chain fixes a lot of these problems in a way. Because if we're going to go back to that period where we're going to allow for these platforms to be co-opted and used. And we've seen it firsthand right here with our 2016 election. I just don't understand. I, I Help me understand this. What are what are some of your tech friends? What are your Web3 friends? Because I keep seeing a lot of the people who think they're just a lot smarter than most of us, like this is about owning the libs. This is about, uh, you know,
2: and I don't get it, man. I really don't. Yeah, I think one big thing is curation and the responsibility to basically monitor content and build a safe environment for the broader mass of users. And don't forget, like that was the value of a newspaper, right? A newspaper, even though a lot of it's original reporting and people are staffed and there's bylines, it was really kind of curating an experience of information that was delivered to you on a front page and going deeper from an editor and from a brand that you trust. So you effectively put the responsibility and the ownership in the media company that you follow to give you the information that they believe you need that could better help you in your community if it's local or, you know, society if it's global or, you know, your passions if it's something like sports and tech and so forth. But that was the role of a newspaper. And basically, Twitter became the new A1, right? Twitter became the front page for not most people because I still think we like Feel like, I mean, people like me and you are on Twitter all day. So we feel like Twitter's like way bigger than it actually is. But for a lot of people, it did become the A1. A lot of journalists started to just create content directly for Twitter or snippet their articles out and conversations were being had. So people really use that as their front page. And now all of a sudden, Twitter's like burdened with the responsibility to like, curate this information and be responsible for this information.
0: But are they curating it, though? So that's the point. Really, only if it bubbles up, only if there's something that is really divisive that might Threaten the rules of, of trust and safety. That's when humans come in. So if you're telling me, are, are the algos are, the, are are they? Yeah, um, people,
2: people, people get frustrated. I think with like the algorithm of like the content that they see. You see a lot of the blue check mark arguments happening, which is like how you get verified. Like there's many people who you know claim to and it's definitely true. Like I've tried to get verified. There's a lot of mock accounts. There's a lot of people pretending to be them creating content, DMing other people. And, you know, Twitter, Twitter hasn't given them access to like a verified badge. So I do think that it's a difficult position for Twitter to be in because while I believe, yes, there is like the ability to create openly. And I think like, I don't know this for a fact, but like, I feel like There's very little censorship that's happening on Twitter right now. Like I know like the porn community is out there. You have the right, you have the left, you have everyone kind of creating what they want to create. But I do think it's when people start to see their own reputation or identity or liberty is kind of being pushed up against where they have frustrations, like better understanding the verified process, which is one of the things that Elon was saying. Like if you pay for Twitter, then you should be verified because there's a way to like make that stuff more verifiable. But we've seen, like, we saw how crazy 4chan became. We saw Reddit, you know, which was meant to be open and you know open communities and conversations we had have to really crack down because there's things that really kind of like went against the terms of service and started to become a lot more volatile. And then we're seeing that with Twitter as well. Now, I do think you constantly see conversations around like we should create a decentralized Twitter or, or when is that going to come and when are conversations going to be had? People very quickly forget that like unless their friends are there or unless there's an audience, they really don't want to spend time. So I feel like the articulation of what's really wanted and what's missing is not very clear and thus we keep batting ourselves back and forth. Now the the other big news topic tied to this is like the New York Times came out a couple weeks ago basically in you know so many words like taking a stance on like how journalists should use Twitter and you know there was the new um I don't know the role exactly of the person coming into CNN I don't know if they're running CNN or elsewise but they tweeted out today that basically they're going to be going off of Twitter. So I do think that there is like kind of a batting back and forth of like different POVs as to how it should be used, especially from the journalism side and the content consumption side. But I don't think it's articulated enough where people deeply understand like what exactly should be done. There's just complaints.
0: So going back to when Bezos bought the Washington Post and Mark Benioff, CEO, founder of Salesforce, bought Time, there was a lot of criticism from the right, basically saying that all of these perceived kind of lefty billionaire tech People are buying up kind of the means of communication or information or anything like that so what was your experience at the Washington Post there how involved was Bezos were the editors routinely talking to him was there anything you know that you could see that there was any bias being worked in from whatever his worldview was whether it relates to running one of the largest companies in the world and half a billion dollars in revenue a year and fighting union uh, issues you know what I mean like there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff to unpack there
2: yeah totally so one absolutely not. I feel like that's kind of what I was getting at with the education of the ethics of kind of how things work. So the way that a newsroom is traditionally managed is there's like a managing editor who effectively is like a de facto CEO of their own right. Like there's like certain things set up as to like how information and content goes up the chain, what gets approved, how it gets published that, you know, are, are viewed and edited, you know, by By those people only. So there's no outside influence. Um, There aren't like conversations being had. It's just not structured and set up that way because it completely goes against kind of the value and the mission of what quality journalism should be. So basically, one great example of like how these parameters are really set, which is often misunderstood, is like. The relationship between editorial, i.e. like news, and the opinion section. So a lot of newspapers, and this is a big argument, have an opinion section where they could bring on certain voices, you know, certain like influencers, people with a point of view, usually opposing point of view, that kind of create on the site. And few know that they are literally separated within a newsroom. So there's a separate editor, right? There's a managing editor of opinions. There's a managing um, editor of kind of the news section they work on different floors quite literally physically on different floors so they don't brush elbows and don't talk to each other they don't necessarily plan anything against each other so that nothing could be influenced and that's how things are created but what we ran into especially like during the digital age was that many opinion articles like when they were shared on social weren't very clear right you didn't necessarily know that this was like an op-ed from a certain writer and you know this well with like cnbc um but we had to like change the way that like that metadata was structured and went through on social like we had to literally put the word perspective in front of like every single headline that came out of the opinion section to make it very clear for people that might not click through to the article and may just see a headline that this is actually in fact an opinion so with all that being said just to like more directly answer your question like the bezos acquisition one personally for me was like the reason i went to the post um i think it was a great kind of like influence in terms of how we thought about tech how we thought about building new businesses outside of the reputation of the newsroom but there was no kind of like interference or relationship with things happening within the newsroom itself and you know of course like People could feel like different ways about that, but you know, being like being in there, I could tell you that that was in fact the case where Marty Baron, at the time when I was there, you know, really kind of felt like the driver and the CEO of kind of what was happening on that side, and then you had Fred Ryan, who was the CEO of the business, who basically had the relationship with Bezos and would have conversations around the business and new ventures there. But it's funny; it
0: really feels like this is an apples to orange comparison, if you will, because you know. F- Twitter is is a platform, right? And, and and I think that we keep hearing this expression: it's the de facto town square. And to your point that you made earlier. There's 320 million global monthly active users. Facebook has 3 billion. They have more than a third of the planet on theirs. You know, as far as Americans who log on and use it every day, um, we're talking about maybe tens of millions, but it's it's below 50 million. Most of them are outside the U.S. So you have Elon, who's a power user, and there's a lot of things he really doesn't particularly like, but he's the single largest beneficiary of the service, the way it exists right now. And so if he goes in and he fixes a bunch of these things, there's no guarantee that those issues as related to free speech change whatsoever, especially in the world that we live in right now. And so I don't know. I just find it really different than comparing it to, let's say, if he were to go by the New York Times because he's pissed off about the opinion writers there. You know what I mean? That sort of thing. That would be really troubling in a way. So I don't find this that troubling. It's a bit of a sideshow and I'm just curious because Jack Dorsey, I think his role in all this is really important. Here's a guy who is a two-time CEO, a founder of the company. He was recently pushed out. He really does believe in in a kind of open sort of source platform. They started that Blue Sky Initiative um, a few years ago. It doesn't seem like it gained any traffic. And if it were to gain some traction... Wouldn't it have been the end of the centralized platform that's able to garner $5 billion in ad sales a year? You know what I mean? So that's that's what I'm curious, your take on that.
2: Yeah. I think a lot of the approach to decentralization, especially with these new services, directly conflict with existing models. When you think of the advertising model, when you think of the subscription model, a lot of these are very data-reliant, They're basically giving service to users for free in exchange for data so that they could be monetized there versus what you're really seeing in the emerging kind of Web3 market, which is people buying in, being able to control their data, being able to kind of control the situation and be interoperable, like take take what they have and leave and go to another platform as well. You know, there is an argument that many things are more decentralized than we feel, right? Like a big complaint. For a lot of the centralized platforms with like Web3 enthusiasts is that, you know, these centralized platforms monetize your data, it's all based on advertising, and you're getting no value out of it if you've ever looked at like the ad tech space, like the amount of different companies that are in the ad tech space and controlling like the cookies and the delivery and the traffic and so forth, it's like thousands of companies. It's arguably one of the most decentralized things you've ever seen in your life to the point of almost chaos. I do think that it's very difficult for a lot of these incumbent platforms and companies to really go purely decentralized without completely gutting their business. I do think that that does give opportunity for a lot of like foundational new companies to be created that could arguably compete or bring new value that kind of is like birthed out of the purpose and the intent of what people got out of those platforms. But granted, we we have not seen it. We've like been, I mean, not counting Bitcoin, but as Ethereum has been, been um, kind of like in existence and you know, dApps are being built on top of it. There's a lot of attempts for these things to be built. In the end, right, I think humans are very social and we like to spend time where other people are spending time as well. So while there may be frustrations on Facebook or Instagram or on Twitter, and we may not like the way that data is used or that the monetization methods are, we spend the time there because that's where other people are. So I think any decentralized service for it to be at the scale of like what a Twitter is and what, you know, a Facebook is and so forth would really need to attract enough people where people feel like they're spending time with others or else it becomes hyper-specialized, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but basically goes to the antithesis of free speech. Because Well, well it, it may support free speech, but you become an echo chamber, right? You're like finding these like communities where people are just saying what you want to hear versus getting an alternate opinion. And that's
0: essentially what's happened though with Twitter in a way. Why is it stuck at 300 million, you know, a- active users? because there's only a handful of verticals that do really well. It's politics, it's entertainment, it's sports, it's markets, and they are heavily curated for a whole host of reasons. Let's talk about DApps, DApps, decentralized apps, okay? And so that was, you know, one of the big promises of smart contracts, right? So if you think of a layer one a protocol like Ethereum, and one of the bull cases there obviously is DApps. I haven't really seen any that would be um, like a normie like me would use just yet. I know that, you know, for years, especially in that period of time that you were probably at Poet and and considering that some of this stuff at the Washington Post and, and talking about transparency, that was like like one of the promises right uh, of a, of a blockchain so it hasn't happened but we see Ether in particular kind of struggling. There was a lot of talk on the Twitter last week about the merge to E two being pushed out, and you know it's funny. Packy and I were having this conversation a couple of weeks ago in the pod, and he had kind of laid out another bull case for Ether, uh, you know, into year end, and you know, not not like a table pounding, but he was like, "Listen, I buy on dips, and here are the reasons why." And you know, it's funny because it was, you know early April. And that was the exact bull case that he laid out in early April of 2022 was the exact bull case that was laid out in April of 2021. And very interestingly, the price was almost the exact same spot. Now, it's up 50% from its lows. You know what I mean? It's also down 50% from its highs. Not a lot's going on there. But if you're pushing out the kind of merge, which was really going to Hopefully, fix the problem from proof of work to proof of stake, less in congestion, less in fees. Talk to me about what's going on here. And is it just a couple months here? or are we talking again? because it should have been done by now if you're thinking about the bull case early last year?
2: Yeah, no, I think I think a lot of the progress on Ethereum is very promising. I mean, it's a highly technical challenge to be overcome that many people are working on. I mean, again, like we've had a lot of the l twos come out and help satisfy a lot of those frustrations, whether that's like gas fees and scalability with what you've seen through like Polygon and others that are kind of built in order to accommodate that. We're still seeing most user interest on Ethereum. We're seeing most development happening on top of Ethereum. Packy wrote that great Solana piece, I think late last year, that was talking about the transactions per minute And the kind of cost efficiencies of building on top of Solana, while Solana continues to grow, it hasn't necessarily pulled too much away from Ethereum. And the developer focus is still happening on Ethereum. And the NFT, I think at the end of last year, like 90 plus percent of the NFT volume happened on Ethereum. So I think like this is a problem that will be solved. I mean, I know that it feels like these predictions have kind of bucketed it within a year. And then we look back a year later, and we're still in the same place. But again, like, I think it's It's not rocket science, but it is rocket science in a different way, like you're really maneuvering this new age type computer that a lot of people are working on, a lot of people are using as consumers, as developers, and things need to be done very carefully in order to kind of help achieve, especially a migration like that. So I'm very confident that we're going to get there. I think more and more we're going to see development happening on top of Ethereum, especially on the L2 side. But I hope, you know, more directly as Ethereum begins to kind of transition that over. But I'm in Paki's boat. I mean, I have a strong bull case and feeling around Ethereum. I think end of year we'll definitely see ups again. And it's just tracking a few things. I mean, it's tracking the amount of investment capital that's coming in. I think like $12.5 billion of VC capital went into Web3 just in Q1 in like 650 companies. Again, many of those are building dApps or on top of the Ethereum blockchain. The talent migration is massive. And that's not just like people saying it, we're seeing it happen constantly. Web3 companies or Web 2.5 type companies are emerging every single day. So I think with that sort of focus and action and capital coming in and kind of the value that I guess like in return is perceived and and felt mandated by those folks, like it's going to, it's near.
0: Did you catch this article in Bloomberg today? Crypto startups bring in billions, even with lofty valuations, For now, you like that for now and it's talking about so that, you know, kind of quoting that that kind of first quarter number that you're talking about. But it seems like there's some trepidation on some of the valuations. And, you know, we've talked with Rick Heitzman on many times on the pod over the last few months or so about the lag between public market valuations and private market valuations. And I'm just curious from your perspective, because you're looking um, at a lot of different companies in web3 is web3 different than some of the normal tech sort of private ecosystem is there are we likely to see inflated valuations there relative to let's say some hot consumer app or some other crap you know what i mean that that's been uh, web2ish
2: yeah i mean for sure i mean i mean in this space speculation is outpacing product development. And you really feel that not for all companies, but for many companies, you know the promise of what's going to be built is really what you're investing in. And then that is being executed over a period of time. I'd say in the later stage type investments, which mind you is very new in Web3, like growth stage investing in Web3, is beyond a couple projects like a year, two years old max, but that's starting to accelerate. Those you're really seeing more kind of immediate product fit. You could look at traditional like user growth numbers, usage type numbers, revenue numbers, and be able to attribute value to that. But a lot of these pre-seed seed companies that are coming out, you're betting on the team, You're betting on the products that are going to be built and released. So that's why I think it's very important as an investor to like have conviction in exactly what you're looking for. So like we look at particular primitives, which are like, how is crypto uniquely unlocking this? what do incentives start to look like? Are tokens kind of changing the way that people are engaging and thinking about this sort of business? And you have to kind of be like highly convicted in understanding like how you believe that these companies and founders are going to develop that. But it's definitely an inverse type approach. Like you look at, you know, consumer applications in you know, Web2 that are continuing to be, uh, continue to be created and sure there's pre-seed pre-product that's being developed there. But for the most part, you can see like what usage looks like, what test flight looks like, how people are going to leverage it. Now, the one thing I will say is we talk about scaling web three or scaling crypto all the time. And what I think is fascinating is the few amount of users that use certain applications. Like we talk about a thousand true fans or a hundred true fans. Like we could live in a world in crypto where all you need is really 10 true fans, but those true fans drive a tremendous amount. I mean, I'm exaggerating there, but (laughs) drive like a tremendous amount of like, market volume and usage and because the crypto users, I mean, we've seen this through like the OpenSea numbers, the amount of users compared to GMB is just massive. Like there's really nothing that compares to that. I think there's like 190 million unique Ethereum addresses that are driving all of this value in market. So I think it's very important to be mindful and not discount the power of these crypto users and how much value they really bring to these systems. I think that's very different to how we've looked at these Web 2.0, type platforms where the experience is free in exchange for advertising it's an entirely new model
0: yeah well i'm following your progress there and the sort of investments you and some of my very smart friends much smarter than me are making in web3 because uh, you know at the end of the day you would probably look to me and say hey listen some of the most successful web3 projects were actually founded or some of the you know the best investments were made in that last crypto winter in 18 and 19 that sort of thing and so some of the smartest people who are focused on this they kept heads down. They really care about the price of Bitcoin or the price of ETH at at the time. And they just kept on investing or building that sort of thing. Well, listen, man, I'm glad we caught you before your run with Fish uh, at MSG this week. Enjoy it. Keep it all together. And we'll see you very soon on OK Computer. Thanks, Jared, for joining us. Thanks, man. Pleasure.